couple of things that we've done uh, during this series is we've identified that man is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. We've uh, located the human spirit. We've identified that uh, the soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. The spirit is the real you. It's the eternal part of man. And, of course, everybody knows what the body is. That's the part that most of the world listens to the most. Um, so we've talked a little bit about being led by the spirit. We've talked a little bit about developing the spirit, uh, developing your own spirit. Um, so let's just go ahead and start taking some of these questions. Question number one, did the Lord know which human spirits would become saved and made righteous and which would not before he created them? Um, well, the, the easy answer is yes. The Bible says that God knows everything. He's omnipotent, which means, or um, I'm sorry, he's all-knowing, which means he would know the beginning from the end. But you're going to, I'm going to have to qualify the answer there without just giving, a, uh, without just leaving it at that. Because if, if you just say that God's all-knowing and he knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, then uh, church doctrine has ingrained in people that God is picking who will and who won't be saved. And the fact is, the Bible says that it's the will of God for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if it's the will of God for everybody to be saved, then that means him knowing who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved has nothing to do with him picking and choosing or him determining who it is that will be. The Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world, not those who were predetermined or pre-chosen to be saved. So if God's will is for everybody to be saved and if Jesus died for everybody's salvation... Then the simple question becomes, why aren't men saved? Well, the, the answer to that is pretty simple. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come unto me, and I will in no wise cast him out. So it's the will of man that determines salvation, not the will of God. So, yeah, God knows. He knows who's going to be saved. He knows who's not going to be saved. For example, in the Old Testament, he tells uh, uh, at one point in time, talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, he said, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. So he knew that Ephraim was not going to turn away from idolatry. Although the blessings of God and the covenant promises were available to him just like they were everybody else. But he wasn't going to walk in them by keeping the commandments of God. So God's all-knowing. He knows the future. But he's predetermined or he's predestined or he's preordained, foreordained for everybody to be saved. And the only reason man isn't, a man would not be saved is because of his actions and his choice, not God's. We could talk about that forever. Here's another question. How does a soul prosper? Referring to 3 John 1, 2. And what role does my spirit play in this? Um, also, how can I trust God more? What's next? Um, turn with me over to Third John 2. There's only one chapter in there. John is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Now, some people will say that he's writing this to an individual. And uh, as a result, it doesn't belong to everybody. But the fact that the Holy Spirit saved it for us is enough of a proof for me that, that if God wants it for one person, since he's no respecter of persons, that he would want it for everybody. And John says, uh, makes an interesting statement here. He said, uh, well, let me let me get it so I read it correctly and quote it right instead of misquoting it. Third John verse two says, "Beloved, I wish above all things." Now, the word is uh, the word translated "wish" also means to pray, 
It means to desire. So you can't tell from the context whether he's saying this is just what I want or if he's saying this is my prayer. Either way, it's the same thing because he's, if he's inspired by the Holy Ghost, then this would be God's desire or what the Holy Spirit was prompting John to wish, desire, or pray for this individual he's writing to, to Gaius. He said, Beloved, I wish or pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. Now, many times when the Bible talks about spirit and soul, you have to look at the context to see what he's talking about. For example, uh, there are times where spirit is referred to and uh, and it means uh, something other than that. Maybe it means the soul of man or it means the entirety of man. There are other places where the Bible speaks of the word, uses the word soul, and it means the entirety of man. For example, uh, Peter talked about how that there were eight souls saved by water in the days of Noah during the flood. Well, if we, if we want to, if we try to get technical and get too technical about things, uh, we'd have to identify that he's saying that I want three minds, wills, and emotions saved, or, or that was, uh, that was what occurred in the days of Noah. Well, we know that's not the case. We know that the word soul there is a reference to the entirety of the human beings that were saved and spared by the ark. Well, in this case, we have to either identify whether it's talking specifically the soul or whether it's talking generally something else. Well, there's no way for us to identify anything other than specific definition, the specific definition of of soul, which is mind, will, and emotions. So where he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. He's saying the renewing of your mind, as Paul talked about it in Romans 12 too, or the saving of the soul, as James talked about it in James 1.21, it's got to be the thing that he's talking about here. He's saying prosperity and health comes down to your mind being renewed, your will being changed, your emotions being tempered. Well, what do you renew your mind to and change your will according to and temper your emotions by? There's only one thing that makes a difference, and that's the Word of God. Now, think about how that fits in with what James or what, uh, oh, what's the Old Testament guy? Joshua. Joshua 1, 8 says, Joshua is being spoken to by God, being instructed by God. And he said, this book of the law, we might paraphrase it in modern day language as this word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou, uh, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, as you renew your mind to the word, you'll make your way prosperous. So now you've got a New Testament confirmation of the Old Testament instruction given to Joshua. John is saying by the Holy Ghost, I wish or pray or desire above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Um, Hear me out on something I'm going to say. Don't listen to part of it and then turn me off. Let me finish and then you make your own determinations on it, okay? Most people... In my experience, most people are trying to operate spiritual things through their soul. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. In the Old Testament uh, book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet in the days when Israel went into bondage because of disobedience to God's word. And at one point in time, Israel had, or at the point in time that Israel had gone into captivity to the Babylonians, there were some prophets that were coming along uh, that were saying, God doesn't want this to stand. He wants us to rise up. He wants us to, to throw off the, sh- the shackles of this uh, uh, oppression by the Babylonians and, uh, and, and return to our land and so forth. God spoke through Jeremiah and said, 
say to the people, these false prophets are prophesying not by the Spirit of the Lord, but out of their own spirits. Now, these men were not, um, well, nobody could be saved before Jesus. And so they're unrenewed, they're unsaved individuals, their spirits are spiritually dead. Although, even in the Old Testament, you know as well as I do that God chose certain people and he put an anointing upon them. The king, the priest, and the prophet specifically were anointed by the Holy Ghost to do the work that God had given them to do. Did that mean their spirits were made new? That couldn't happen until the blood of Jesus was shed. So what does that mean? That means God specifically tagged them, chose them, and anointed them for a specific work for a specific period of time. Now, in addition to that, there are a couple of people in the Old Testament, like where the building of the temple was concerned, where it talks about the Spirit of the Lord was on them because they were workers of metal or they were a craftsman or something like that that God was going to use to fashion the temple according to the instructions that he gave uh, both Moses for the tabernacle in the wilderness and then uh, Solomon for the, the first temple. The Bible talks about those people operating under the power of the Spirit of God, too. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they were born again? No, nobody could be born again. So you've got people in the Old Testament that were operating out of their own spirits. In other words, they were operating according to what they wanted things to be. In some cases, they were influenced by the devil. But in most cases, at least in the one that we're talking about in Jeremiah's situation, these were just people that didn't want to be in bondage and didn't think God would want his people in bondage, so they prophesied according to what they thought would be good or right or appropriate. Um, I, I run into this sometimes with uh, with people when they get uh, uh, unscriptural ideas and unscriptural notions. Because what happens many times, I, 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 well, I'll, I'll give you one specific example, and I won't tell you much about it to, so I won't embarrass anybody. But somebody came to me here not too long ago, and they said, Pastor Mike, I, the Lord showed me something. I said, okay, what did he show you? And he started telling me what it was, and it was unscriptural. And so I said, well, you got your Bible in your hand. Turn with me to such and such a scripture and read that. And he did. And I said, now turn to another such and such a scripture and read this passage, these, uh, this section of scripture. And he, he did. And he, then I told him the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Just turn to the last set of scriptures and read this whole chapter. And he did. And all three of those passages contradicted his revelation. So I said, as kindly as I could, I, I saw that he wasn't trying to be rebellious about anything. He just thought he had something from God. So I said as kindly as I could, I can't go along with your revelation. It contradicts what the Bible says is true. Now, you believe the Bible's true, don't you? And he said, well, sure. I said, well, then one of them's wrong. Either the word that you just read, the scriptures you just read, or your revelation. One of those two are wrong. Which one is it? And he said, but Pastor Mike, I got it while I was praying in tongues. And I laughed and I said, you know how many things the devil tells me while I'm praying in tongues? That seems to be one of his times when he talks the most. Now, why is that? Well, what happens is, it's such a natural thing. It's such a common thing. We want our mind to be involved. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me remind you of some scriptures that I'm sure you already know. But it would still be good for you to see them since I'm talking about them. Let's start reading in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Let's just start reading in verse 14. Paul said, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, 
but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, he's noticing the contrast, or you should notice the contrast that Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost between the spirit and the soul. Understanding has to be a part of the soul. Because everything of the mind, the will, and the emotions is the soul. Well, then understanding would be of the mind. Especially when he contrasts it with the operation of the spirit. He can't be talking about spiritual understanding because he's already told us what his spirit is doing when he's speaking in tongues. He said, when I speak in an unknown tongue or when anybody speaks in an unknown tongue, your spirit is praying. That means your spirit is being exercised. It's operating. But your understanding is unfruitful. We are so accustomed. Mankind as a whole is so accustomed for their, to their mind, literally their soul, but specifically their mind being in control. A lot of people don't want to relinquish that control. A lot of well-meaning people, well-meaning Christians, people that want to grow in the things of God, people that want God to use them. But they won't relinquish control because they're so used to their mind being involved and their mind being in charge that they don't know how to quiet their mind. They don't know how to... to uh, uh, to settle their mind down and allow their spirit to express itself. Many times what happens, and I know this happens with me, and that's how I know what happens with everybody. Many times what happens is you'll be praying in tongues, and all of a sudden thoughts will come to you about something great and grand and glorious. And it's easy to think, oh, God has shown me that. Well, folks, I've had, I've had those thoughts come to my mind when I was praying in tongues about what a great way God's going to use me in. And what a grand ministry I'm going to have. And what power is going to be displayed through me. Can I ask you a question? Is there ever a time where the Holy Ghost talks about how he's going to lift you up? Jesus said the Holy Ghost would testify of him. Not of you. And so what happens so often is while you're praying in tongues, at least, at least initially, if you'll stay with it, then your mind will get quiet and those things will stop. I'm not sure how many Christians ever get there. Because it takes work, it takes discipline, it takes effort. But if you'll stay with it, then you'll learn to quiet your mind rather than try to think about what you're praying. So often, I see people that are trying to understand with their mind. They're trying to understand what their spirit is saying in other tongues. Well, unless the Holy Ghost shows you, there's no way you can know. And, and, and as a result, so many times people are praying in tongues, but they're more in the soulless realm than they are in the spirit. Because they never relinquish that control of their minds. They never just let their minds be quiet and accept the fact that the Bible says when you pray in other tongues, your spirit is praying. Your spirit is the thing that's expressing itself in its supernatural and divine manner because they're words that your head doesn't understand. You can almost see it on people's faces. When they pray in tongues, they're praying hard. They squint their eyes and they're praying hard. Well, how does that help? He that prays in an unknown tongue with a real scowl look on his face. Then he's praying divine secrets. No, we're trying to do something physical. We're trying to do something in the mental realm. Rather than relinquishing control, just saying, you know, my head doesn't understand this. My head may never understand this. I never go into praying in tongues expecting to know what I'm praying about. And it's working for me real well that way. But see, so often people want to get things from God. Here's the danger of being led by the Spirit. No, I don't like the way I said that. Here's the, um, there is a danger when you seek too, too hard, when you're pursuing too much to be led by the Spirit. Because you can't make the Holy Ghost lead you. 
It's something that just happens. Now, it will happen if you accept it and just relax and let God do his thing. For as many as are led by the Spirit, Romans eight fourteen, they are the sons of God. But you try to be led by the Holy Spirit. You try to force this. You try to make this happen. You go in like saying, Lord, I want to be led. I want to be led. I want to be led. Well, what are you doing? You're chasing things mentally. Everybody that does that is saying, I want to know these things in my head. So people are pursuing with the soul the things of the Spirit. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. That's where people make mistakes. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned about being led by the Spirit were from the mistakes I made. I don't want to learn that way anymore. I'd rather just accept the Word and sit back and let the Lord lead me and let the Lord guide me. I've learned through experience over the years. I've learned that the Holy Spirit has a responsibility to lead me, so I don't have to try to force it. Anything he needs me to know today, he'll show me today. If I don't need to know something or don't need to know it yet, I'm okay with that. I've had the Lord lead me and speak to me on some things to tell me about things that were coming. And every time he has in a, in a, in a, um, well, in a spectacular manner, every time he's told me that is because there was real trouble ahead. Well, I've learned I'd rather not have the trouble. I'd rather just let it happen as it goes. And let my spirit be that which God contacts. Romans 8.16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Please notice something about that verse of scripture, how the Holy Ghost leads you. He leads you spirit to spirit. Now the Bible says about Moses, Moses was considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he talked to God face to face. You've got something that's greater than what Moses had. You've got spirit to spirit communication. And that completely bypasses your mind. So let me encourage you. When it comes to the things of the Spirit, turn your mind off when you're praying in tongues. Try to bring your mind back to, if you started off praying about certain things, like for example in prayer school, we start off each week talking about or uh, praying about uh, the glory of God, the move of God in the last day church. Literally the latter rain, what the Bible refers to as the latter rain. Well, if your mind starts wandering, bring it back to those scriptures about the latter rain. But if you're not praying in, a, in a, uh, a controlled setting like that or when you're just on your own and you're just edifying yourself or praying in other tongues as the Holy Ghost leads you, then try to bring your mind back to the things of God rather than yourself. Most of the things your mind wanders about has to do with you and your life. Well, that's not the way God's going to speak to you about you and your life. He's not going to speak to you through your mind. He'll impress upon you things through your spirit. So I hope you understand what I mean. Many people, maybe even most people, are trying to operate spiritual things through their soul. But your mind that's not renewed to the word is not a safe guide. Your will that's not tempered or controlled or directed by the word of God is not a safe guide. And your emotions that have not been tempered or disciplined according to the word of God, they certainly are not a safe guide. So how is your soul supposed to benefit you? Without or apart from the word of God. You can't. So that's why John said, I wish or pray above all things. And it's true for you, just like it was for Gaius that he was writing to. I wish or pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. 
I, the Lord witnessed something in my heart. I have to be careful because normally I would say the Lord said something, but it wasn't words. It was just an inward knowing. It was an instant inward knowing. And this was just within the last month, several, well, maybe even three weeks ago. I don't know. But within the last month, I'm minding my own business, praying in tongues, not praying about anything specifically, just praying in tongues to edify myself for the purpose of building myself up spiritually. And all of a sudden, I knew something that I hadn't thought about. That It's not new information, but it was something I never considered. And that was, I instantly knew. And again, it, it, it wasn't so much words, but it was like... Um, Well, the nearest thing I know how to describe it by, it was almost like something that happened before and I had a memory of it. That's how instant it was. That's how clear it was. That's how uh, much of a revelation it was. And through that inward witness, the Lord witnessed to me that for the last 35 years, I've put the word first and pursued the things of God and sought after wisdom. And therefore, the blessings of God that say that the, that, uh, uh, belong, that the Bible says belongs to us as a result of that are mine. Now, that may not seem like anything to you, and I could have told you. I mean, if I'd counted it up, you know, I could tell you when things started and when I started pursuing the things of God. But having that inward witness, man, it gave me a confidence about things that I've never had. Now, um, honestly, I'm always honest with you, but I want you to be real clear that I'm being honest about this. I don't know of anything in this world that I'm better at than anybody else. But there is one thing about me, and that is when I know what God's given me to do, I'll stick with it. I just won't quit. I'll keep going if it hair lips the devil, as they used to say down south. I don't really know what that means, but that's just what they used to say. But once I know what I'm supposed to do, I'll stay after it. That is one thing about me. Now, hopefully that's a positive, at least in spiritual things. I can be that way in natural things and it not be so positive. But when the Lord witnessed to me that for over 35 years, and that's the way it came, over 35 years, I've pursued the things of God and put the Word of God first. I've I've, uh, meditated on the Word. I've given the Word first place in my life. And as a result, all the blessings that say that that the Bible tells us belong to us from putting the Word of God first, those are mine. I'm praying with a different confidence that I ever have. Just in the last month. I'm, I'm expectant in a greater degree, in a greater manner than I ever was before. Now, like I said, was it new information? No, it's just something I never, never really thought about. But boy, the way that it came, it was almost like God was patting me on the back and saying, go get it. I like that. Well, I gotta tell you, I would have liked to have had that way back when we were having some trouble. Why did the Lord wait for 35 years? Why didn't he tell me at 20 years? That would have helped. You can't give those things to yourself, folks. But what happens is a lot of people try to give it to themselves. They'll think these things up and think that it's the Holy Ghost. And it's not. There's a verse of scripture in Proverbs that says, There is no counsel or wisdom against the Lord. You can tell yourself anything you want to. You can conjure up any kind of idea that you that you have a desire for. You can tell yourself what uh, a great ministry you're going to have or how God's going to use you in spectacular power. You can tell yourself anything you want to. But if it's not God, it's not going to matter. That's why it's so much easier to just shut your mind off and let God lead you. Because he knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. 
He knows what's best for each individual. And then if we don't try to make it, then we won't fall flat on our face trying to prove something that wasn't him to begin with. There's a relinquish of control, a relinquishing of control that's necessary if you're going to be led by the Holy Ghost. Okay, well, I don't know if I answered that question or not, but we'll move on. When you pray for something, how exactly does the answer come? Does God use angels, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit? Does he supernaturally touch physical things that cause the change? Do we need to know? Does it matter? Uh, No, no, different ways, and yes. there's There's no set way that God does anything. And just as soon as you get to thinking this is the way it's going to be, you can mark it down. It'll be anything except that. You start praying for God to meet your needs and look for the mailbox to bring you money. You're wasting your time. You might as well go check some other area. Just as soon as you get it figured out or think you've got it figured out, here's how it's going to work. That's not the way it works. God always answers questions from the inside. Here's another thing about being led by the Holy Ghost. A lot of people that think they're putting the word first really aren't. And that's one of the hardest places to get people back on track. For example, the Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we're healed. That means healing's already yours. If you have the information from the Scripture that healing is already yours and you try to go get healing, you're not putting the word first in your life. I got an email uh, a little over a week ago, I guess, and there was uh, uh, an individual that had had... uh, um, um, I think it was some kind of kidney pr- trouble. I, I don't. They use some kind of medical term, and I think it has to do with the deterioration of the kidneys. And um, um, but I, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not sure exactly what it meant. But uh, near as I could tell, they had some kind of kidney problems. There was one of their kidneys that was uh, that stopped functioning, and so they don't live around here. They live an hour or so away, and so they came to healing school one night, and uh, we were laying hands on the sick, and I laid hands on her, and um, and she was healed. Kidney started working, everything, you know, miraculously turned around, went back to the doctor the next day or two, and the uh, doctor said, well, we don't understand, but the kidney wasn't working before, and now it is working, or this body part, I think it was kidney, it wasn't working before, and now it is, and, and uh, we, we can't explain it, we want to run some other tests, so they ran all kinds of tests, couldn't, uh, bottom line, short story, they didn't know what happened, but God healed her. Well, this was uh, about two years ago. And so the email that I got uh, last week was this individual relating the story. Hadn't heard the story before. They hadn't told us about it. Didn't tell us about it when it first happened. But uh, was relating it in this uh, this email, recent email. And so uh, the lady said, uh, uh, well, something else has developed in my body, and now I want to come back and have you lay hands on me again. Now, folks, uh, I'm glad to lay hands on anybody that I can help, and that's okay with me. But I can guarantee you one thing. God doesn't heal people through the laying on of hands for people to start depending on those folks to pray for them every time they get in trouble. Now, we have a lot of situations where we hear about, and other things that we don't hear about, this was being a good example, where we never knew what happened. But we never emphasize that. And the reason we don't emphasize that, now, if you did, you could draw a bigger crowd. And I hope you understand how this stuff works. You start building up and uh, the, the people that have been healed and the things that God has done through your ministry or through you laying hands on somebody or something like that, you can draw a crowd. Because Christians are ready to find somebody that will do it for them. But we never make any big deal about that. I don't think you're supposed to make a big deal about that. 
I mean, it's good to be able to help people, but God doesn't want to help you through the laying on of hands so that you have somebody you run to whenever they, whenever you get in trouble. What this individual should have gotten and what I communicated to him in the email, the thing that, that God had done for him was to build their confidence in his word. Because except for the word, what difference does it make if I or anybody else laid hands on them? Jesus himself could have laid hands on them, and if they didn't have some kind of faith in what the word said, it wouldn't have worked. So a lot of times when people think they're putting the word of God first, they're really not. And it is the putting of God's word first that develops your spirit. It is the putting of God's word first that develops a confidence that no matter whatever else happens, if I'm the only person left on the planet that believes this, this is true. That's the kind of confidence that God uh, uh, responds to. That's the kind of thing, that, the, the kind of faith that gets answers. In over 35 years, I haven't turned in a prayer request. I'll never turn in a prayer request for the rest of my life. Why would I? Is God going to hear somebody else instead of hearing me? About me? Yeah, but what about Pastor so-and-so? Or what about Apostle so-and-so? Or what about Prophet so-and-so? Does God hear a prophet or an apostle before he'll hear me? Or you? He doesn't. You may not know that, but he won't. So a lot of this stuff that we accept is just churchianity, not Christianity, just churchianity, is really not putting the word first. And for the most part, it seems to me, you judge it for yourself, but it seems to me for the most part, the church has made dependence of Christians. They've kept Christians babies. And even fed off of this idea that you need me. Because if you don't know you need me, then you might run off and do your own thing and leave me in the lurch. Well, folks, you don't need me. You need a pastor, whether that's me or not, between you and God. But you don't need me. You don't need me to pray. God doesn't hear my prayer before he hears you. He doesn't move you back in the queue when I start praying. Or when anybody else does. That's what putting the word of God first place is. It's accepting the word for what it says instead of the way things are normally done. Amen. All right. Doesn't look like these questions are. I'm not sticking with the questions much, but anyway, I hope this is helpful. Oh, here's a good question. How are you so awesome? What are some Old Testament scriptures that show man is a spirit, soul, and body? Um, well, there's any, any number of them. Why would we need them? The Bible is progressive revelation. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. They've got a family member that's, uh, um, that's stuck in the Old Testament thing about uh, Job and, and um, uh, when Jacob prayed and the angel touched his hip and his hip went out of joint and all that kind of stuff, which is not a picture of healing in, in the scripture. It's a picture, a picture of prayer. Prayer costs you something. Prayer will cost you physically. But anyway, they had a family member that was stuck on some of these things, and and uh, they were trying to, the individual from our church was trying to share some things with them about healing, and, and they need healing in their bodies. And so they were trying to share some things with them about the New Testament, about um, healing and what belongs to us and so forth. And uh, and the, the family member said, well, what about Jacob? What do I, and he asked, he said, what do I say? I said, I'd say, what about Jesus? 
Yeah, but, but what about this? What about where the Old Testament says that God makes evil? And what about where the Old Testament says that God will bring sickness on you? What about the Old Testament that says this? Oh, the Bible is progressive revelation. You know more than any writer in the Old Testament, even though they were inspired of the Holy Ghost. Because you've got the Holy Ghost inside you. You need to understand that. You need to understand that there were a lot of things, that, certainly that the translators didn't get. But even some of the ones that God was using, they didn't understand the things about God that you do. You think Ezekiel talking about the new birth and about how God takes away the old heart, the stony heart out of the flesh and or out of your body and, or out of you and he puts in a heart of flesh. You think he understood what that was about? Really? We've experienced it and we can't figure it out. But we know more than he did. The Bible is progressive revelation. Don't ever go back to the Old Testament when the New Testament has already proved your point. Now, the Old Testament is a, is a type and a shadow. For example, the Bible talks about how that uh, um, Enoch was caught up in heaven. He walked with God and was not, or God took him. Well, how did he take him? Did he take him physically? We know that Enoch was one of the ones in Abraham's bosom. We know that that's where he wound up. Well, how did he wind up there? In his body, his physical body? Whether you know it or not, the story in Luke chapter 16 is an Old Testament story. It's recorded in the New Testament, but it's an Old Testament occurrence. The rich man and Lazarus, that's one of the greatest examples we have of spirit, soul, and body of anything in Scripture. Well, what about some of the Scriptures we've looked at here? What about Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27? The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Do you realize that a spiritually dead man said that? Psalm 19. David said, the Lord, will, uh, the Lord will light my candle. He'll enlighten my darkness. What's he talking about? He knows he's talking about the spirit. He knows he's talking about direction and spiritual insight comes from within. There's all kinds of Old Testament scriptures to prove it. But the New Testament is the best proof you have. Because you're not going to be judged by the Old Testament. Paul said you'd be judged by his gospel. Well, part of his gospel is spirit, soul, and body. He said so to the Thessalonians. Uh, okay, let me take, uh, let me try one more. In Hebrews 4, in the Young's literal translation, it says, The reckoning of God is living and working. And working and sharp above every two-edged sword. What's the difference between the reckoning of God and the word of God in the King James Version? Why are they using different words? Boy, you start talking about why translators do things that they do. I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know why Dr. Young would translate that reckoning. Well, I'll see. I think I've got it here on this, uh, on this one right here. Let me see if I can get it. That might help us. Okay, well, the context, let's get in context. The context is the, uh, the unbelief of the Jews not going into the promised land. So verse 11, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, May we be diligent then to enter into that rest, that no one in the same example of the unbelief may fall. For the reckoning of, of God is living and working and sharp above every two-edged sword and piercing under the dividing asunder both of soul and spirit 
and of joints also and of marrow and a discerner and the thought of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is not a created thing not manifest before him, but all things are naked and open to his eyes with whom is our reckoning. Well, I like that. Do you know what reckoning is talking about there? It's talking about being judged by the word of God. The reckoning of God, which is translated the word in, uh, in the King James, Strong identifies it as something said by implication, a topic or subject of discourse. Also reasoning by the mental faculty or motive by extension of computation. So what it's talking about is the things of God is what the world will be reckoned by. Well, you can take that in a positive sense or a negative sense. Let's turn it around to the positive. The devil has a reckoning when you use the word of God against him. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a living thing. So there is a reckoning, reckoning not only where we'll be reckoned according to the word, like we just used the example where Paul said that the whole world would be judged by his gospel. How do you get that gospel? Isn't it coincidence that the guy that said he prayed in tongues more than anybody else is the one that had the revelation of Jesus that the world will be judged by? That just seems like such a coincidence to me. Now, I know a lot of the church says that speaking in tongues is not necessary, and others say it's of the devil, and others say it's passed away, and so forth. But the guy that had the revelation that the world will be judged by was the guy that said he spoke in tongues more than anybody that he, that he knew, or than anybody that would read the word. He's talking to the Corinthians specifically, but the Holy Ghost wouldn't have saved it for us if it wasn't true for everybody. Paul must have prayed in tongues constantly. And isn't it interesting that the revelation came to the guy who allowed his spirit to operate? And isn't it also interesting that the guy that told us that what, uh, what happens when we pray in tongues would be that guy that spent more time praying in tongues than anybody else? Well, he said the whole world would be judged by his gospel. In other words, the whole world would be judged by the word of God that was revealed unto him. In other words, there's a reckoning of the world. There's a reckoning coming to the world based on the truth of what God spoke to him and revealed to his spirit. In the same way, there's a reckoning of the devil. Anytime you speak the word, because it's a living thing, it's a living force. It's a living entity. Folks, I don't think there's any way that I could explain because I don't see what I need to see yet. But where the Bible says Jesus was the word in the beginning and the word was made flesh, you need to realize how alive and how, how uh, well, the word seems so inadequate. You need to realize how alive the word of God is. It is a living thing. I'm not talking about the book that's in your lap or the, the iPad that you're looking at the Word, reading the Bible from or anything like that. I'm not talking about the pages. I'm talking about the truth of the words that are communicated through the book or through the, the electronic means that you're looking at. Those words are alive. They were alive when they were spoken. They're alive every time they're spoken now. That's why it's so important to confess the Word. That's why it's so important for you to meditate in the Word because meditating is all about confessing the Word to yourself. And notice the impact that it has on your soul, which is the hardest part for us to turn loose of. The reason that we're so uh, tempted by the flesh is because it's connected to our soul. It's only when your mind starts being renewed to the word. It's only when your mind, your, your mind, your will and your emotions, your thought life, your desires and your emotional makeup is changed by the knowledge of the word. And that comes through meditating and putting the words first. 
It's only when those things begin to change that your body loses its grip on you, the real you. Do you know how few Christians ever enter into that? Do you know how few Christians ever experience that? Do you know how few Christians are going to get to heaven and ever really, uh, whose flesh ever really lost the grip on the real them? I don't think it's going to be much. I don't think it's going to be a big percentage at all. We need to learn to let go. And the only way you can let go in your thought life, in your will. Folks, we all want things. And it's when you come to the place where you recognize I, I, a renewed mind or a new, renewed will is never the person that says, I don't want anything. You never stop wanting something. You never stop having your own desires. You never have, stop having your own will for things. God created you to have a will. He created you to have a desire. He created you to excel. He created you to dominate. But the renewed will is where you say, I know what my desires are, and I'm willing to set those aside for whatever God has for me. It's not, and see, that's where some people bless their hearts. The devil will beat them up. The devil will condemn them and try to make them feel guilty. You know what you want. Well, yeah, I know what I want. But that doesn't mean that's what I'm going to pursue. What I'm going to pursue is what the Bible says God wants for me. But that doesn't change what I want. It doesn't change what my will is. And I found that when I subordinate my will, recognizing right off the bat, here's one reason, here's one way that I use, one principle that I use to identify the leading of the Lord. When I'm praying about something, I'll identify right up front, what do I want here? Well, I want this. This would be better for me. That would be more comfortable. That would be more fun. Whatever the case is, this is what I want. Okay, now I know what I want. Now, Lord, what do you want? I may start praying about it. I may start praying in tongues and my mind will start going over there to that thing I want. Well, God's not going to lead me through my mind in the things that I want. But if over a period of time, if I start praying about something, all of a sudden I get interested in something that other than what I want in this. Well, I'll stop and I'll say, wait a minute. That can't be me. Because what I wanted was over here. Now, all of a sudden I'm thinking about something over here. Seems like something over here is a better way. That can't be me. So now all I've got to do is try to figure out, is it the devil or is it God? Well, that's why knowing the word is so important. Because the devil's never going to take you to something scriptural. If the thing that I've been thinking about or the thing that's been weighing on my heart is in line with the word or in line with the character and the nature of God, then I've got my answer. I know it's not me because I wanted this over here. But what happens, it looks to me like so many times people won't be honest with themselves about what they want. So if the Holy Ghost does start trying to impress upon them something, they haven't identified their own desires, so they come up they come up with the same question over and over again. I've heard this a million times. I don't know if this is me or if it's God. How can you not know if it's you or if it's God? Don't you know what you want? Now, if God's leading you for what you want anyway, jackpot. But that's more rare than you might think. So on, on, on one hand, I understand it. But on the other hand, I can't relate to people that say, I don't know if this is me or if it's God. Because I always know what I want. 
Easy for me to figure out what I want. Sometimes I know that what I want, and when I mean I, I'm not talking about my spirit here, I'm talking about my flesh. Sometimes I know that what I want is not what God would want me to do or have or whatever. So I know that's out. So then I look for whatever he's leading me toward. I think it's a real important. That's a reckoning, folks. Because there's a reckoning of your desires to the things of God. We say we love God, but are we willing to put him first? I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people are willing to have a Savior, but not a Lord. Did I tell you about T.L. Osmond coming back as a failure on the mission field? He said the thing that made the difference to him, with him and with his success, is he said, I made Jesus my Lord. He hadn't been before then. I went on the mission field trying to do the work of God, and Jesus wasn't really the Lord of my life. I came back and was willing to change my understanding or my thinking about some of the things of the church. What he was talking about specifically is he accepted the baptism of the Holy Ghost as being scripturally accurate and true. He said, I made Jesus the Lord of my life. What does he mean? I accepted the word to be true instead of what I thought it should be. He said, and it changed his life and his ministry. Now, you'd think a guy that had such a supernatural call to the mission field as such a young man, a teenager, you'd think somebody like that was already being placed to be used of God, wouldn't you? But it was only when he made Jesus the Lord of his life. That's when things changed. That's when he became effective. This is all part of putting the word first in your life. This is all part of spiritual development. Amen? Well, praise the Lord. We're out of time, so we'll just stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege, and it is a privilege, to be led of the Holy Ghost. We thank you, Father, that because we are your children, we know that we have a right to be led of the Spirit of God. And, Father, there's an expectation on our part to be led of the Spirit. Yet we relinquish control of our lives to the Holy Spirit. We choose, Father, to allow things to happen as we simply put your word first. Rather than try to control them. Rather than try to box the Holy Spirit in and make him tell us what we want. We thank you, Father, that there is no wisdom or counsel against the Lord. But your counsel is sure. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for directing us. Thank you for causing our eyes to be opened to that which we need to do. That which should be done so that we can walk in your perfect will. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.